Welcome to Solo 2.0, an empowerment podcast hosted by two sisters living in LA, making their way through the health and wellness world. I'm Ryan Birch. And I'm Jess Dukan. Each week, we're committed to bringing you conversations with risk-taking, resilient guests from diverse backgrounds, interviews with experts on controversial or misunderstood topics that will expand your perspective, and lively roundtable discussions with our mom, hormone health educator, Candace Birch. We're driven to provide the support and motivation needed to ignite growth, confidence, and purpose so you can step into that 2.0 version of you. We can't wait to dig into these conversations and hope you'll join us every week for a new episode. Let's get into it. Welcome back to the Solo 2.0 podcast. I'm Jess, holistic health coach and founder of Body Bliss by Jess. And I'm Ryan, co-founder of Your Hormone Balance. Today we are joined by Bianca Wilson, a diversity and inclusion coach and co-founder of Safe Space, a collective that builds thriving, inclusive companies that make an impact in the world. They do this by providing workshops, coaching, and consulting to help businesses and individuals identify their own blind spots or biases around race and diversity and break down the blocks or barriers that keep us from talking about these important issues so that we can become better, more effective leaders, and forge deeper, more authentic relationships. Bianca has a background in coaching, race relations, emotional freedom technique, or EFT tapping, and mindful facilitation, and she discovered her activism through her own pain and experiences with racism and exclusion, which she opens up about at the start of this episode. Today, she is driven to create a space for women of color to heal while unleashing passion, authenticity, and love in their relationships and all aspects of their lives. Yeah, but before we get into this episode, I did want to share a quote that I found on Bianca's website, uh, and I've seen it before, about the difference between diversity and inclusion, which I think is really helpful to understand, especially at the start of this episode. So it says, diversity is being asked to the party, inclusion is being asked to dance. So just think about that. There is a big difference between diversity and inclusion, and it is important to understand. And we recognize that conversations around race can feel uncomfortable. I think a lot of people shy away from it. I think maybe there can be a reaction to not even listen to anything about it, but that's exactly why we, why we need to confront it. And this is why we wanted to have Bianca on. She is so open and honest and, and she, she makes it clear. There's really no reason to fear this conversation or fear looking at your own biases. It's really about confronting these issues within ourselves, acknowledging they exist, being aware of the lack of diversity diversity in different situations you're in, in society, in media, being aware, you know, starting there. And, you know, we have to be aware, we have to have these conversations in order to really make progress, to create the change we want to see in the world, not to be cliche, but truly. And it doesn't need to be so uncomfortable to, to face these issues. So we are so grateful to Bianca for coming on, breaking down this topic into something that is approachable and opening our mind and inspiring us to have many more of these conversations. So with that, please enjoy this conversation with Bianca Wilson. Hi, Bianca. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you guys for having me. Oh yeah. We are awesome to be here. We are so ready to get into this conversation. I've been looking forward to this for a really long time. It's very important. And, Mm -hmm. uh, but it's crazy because I think it's been a few years since I've seen you Mm -hmm. and you were leading a essential oils like workshop or I don't know at Erica's house. Yes. Yes. I actually forgot that's where it was. I was like trying to, I'm like, where did I meet you? Yeah. And that's where it was. And, um, that's accurate. It was a essential oils workshop. I was like teaching one-on-one on essential oils cause I was, was, and, and am still passionate about it. Yeah. Um, but that was quite a while ago. Like, I think I was still at my corporate job. You were. My hair, I know was totally different. It definitely was not taking up all the space it's taking up now. It's just <laughs> so beautiful. It is damn gorgeous. Thank you. So beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. It's stunning. So what, what drew me to you at that time? Well, first of all, you were so confident, composed, like so knowledgeable. I knew nothing about essential oils, nor had I ever used them. And I bought like so many from you that uh, to be honest, I did not use, but you were just, you were so convincing and we all just had a great time. There was like a group of 10 of us or something like that. And I just, you just had a a, a powerful presence about you. And then we just kind of lost touch, but I, 
but I remember being impressed by the fact that you were working for an agency mm-hmm. and you were doing this on the side mm-hmm. and you just had a lot of dreams and goals that you talked about and then kind of haven't seen you forever. And then yeah. popped up on Instagram, this amazing work you're doing now with safe space yeah. and around racism and bias. And that is a conversation I wanted to have like the beginning of this podcast. Mm-hmm. And so I'm so grateful that you came on and would love to kind of just know what you've been doing since I saw you last <laughs> and how you got to found safe space. Right. How did I go from essential oils to talking about race and corporate (laughs) situations? It's quite a leap. (laughs) I get that. Um, Yeah. So when you, when I first saw you, um, I was kind of in this process of like discovering what actually I was passionate about. And I wasn't ready to quite leave my job yet. I wasn't quite ready to to leave corporate and specifically the ad agency. Um, so I was finding ways of like bringing in my passions to a foundation I already had, which was going to the office every day. One of them was like holistic health. Like that was something I was always passionate about in an ad agency. I don't know if anyone knows it's hectic AF. It's demanding, it's chaotic, it's very stressful. So for me, having gone through like my journey of understanding my own stress, my own anxiety, battles with depression, the holistic thing was really passionate, but what I was also passionate about was I've always been an advocate an activist at heart for many things, but primarily around like race relations and cross-cultural conversations. Um, it's what I made or I minored in in college. So it's always been a passion of mine. It's a, it's a personal journey as well as like something I'm very committed to for like this country. So when you saw me, I think I was in more of like setting the foundation of having like my passions in the holistic health world. And, um, since then, like obviously like it expanded and I started getting really involved with, um, workshops and different, um, opportunities at the ad agency. Like they just weren't there. Like we were not having conversations and there was a massive impact to it. There was, I mean, there's always kind of high turnover in ad agencies, but the turnover amongst, I don't like saying underrepresented anymore. I was on a panel and this amazing woman called what people of color or women of color or whatever, like underestimated because they're not underrepresented. Mm-hmm. We're here. We're just not our value and how people perceive people of color and underrepresented people is like that they're, that they underestimate them. So I've been starting to say underestimated. It's a great yeah. twist on it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and her, I'll give you her full name of, cause I don't want to, I didn't coin that phrase, but anyway, mm-hmm. so for underestimated people, um, and they would be either like having just negative experiences, but like the turnover for them was just a lot higher. And that was like my own friends and stuff, people that I was very close to. Mm. So even though it wasn't my job, I was in business affairs. I started like being, um, partnering up with who my best friend and who's now my business partner, Emily race around creating, um, different opportunities, like speakers to come in, like nothing crazy, just speakers, maybe having more cultural events. Like we just weren't even having that. And if we were, it was very centered towards like LGBTQIA, which is great. And that's something that like people are super comfortable talking about. You know what I mean? It's not like a, it's not as charged. It's not as politically charged anymore. But when we talk about race, suddenly it's political and people don't want to talk about it. Nobody speaks up. Nobody speaks up. It turns into this whole thing of like, like we're shutting down. Don't want to say the wrong Mm. thing. So it was a gap, you know what I mean? It was just a gap that we saw. And so we created a workshop actually while we were there. Um, it was called, it's called breaking bias and it's still under, um, the rights of that ad agency. Um, but it was something that I realized, like I was still doing the holistic health there, still like bringing a space for people to like understand what their stress points were, but also like, how can we have a conversation around these things that we don't usually like to talk about? Um, so I was able to fulfill on like my passions in both of those spaces, but at the same time, I'm like, that's not sustainable. Cause that's not what I was getting paid for. And they weren't at a place where they wanted to pay for a position in that. So that made my decision ultimately easy to leave. And we left great on great terms. Like everyone was like, you want to come back? You can. I was like, okay, maybe. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I actually ended up, I ended up, I did come back, but like to run workshops around bias. So I did come back, but under like so they became on your own terms. Yeah. On my own yeah, terms. Yeah. yeah, not ongoingly, but for, you know, in the beginning of my journey, they were some early client. Yeah. That's so great. It's yeah. so important to leave a job with in good standing. Totally. Totally. Yeah. yeah. They actually were the ones who were like, one of my bosses was like, 
we're surprised you're still here. Like she straight up was like, we thought you were going to leave forever ago. But if you ever want to like, we support you. And if you ever want to come back. Funny how that's usually how it is. Like when I left my corporate job, I was so worked up about it. And I was like, they're going to hate me. It's going to be like the worst thing ever. They're never going to want to talk to me again. And then they were, they just all said, yeah, obviously get out of here. What are you still doing here? Yes, (laughs) exactly. Exactly. So much easier than you ever think. Yeah. One thing I did want to go back to, which you said was that you've always been an activist. So I'm Mm -hmm. curious, not everybody is that way. So what sort of like early upbringing and experiences Mm -hmm. did you have that kind of sparked that in you? Um, yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I'm from Los Angeles. I was born and born and raised here. And I went to a middle school, I'm sorry, elementary school, not far from my house. And it was like small Catholic school called St. Jerome. (laughs) People were like, was that a saint? I'm like, you bet it was. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, it was predominantly black and Hispanic and I wasn't, it was very mixed and I was not the minority. I didn't really, you know what I mean? Like I wasn't aware of being like the other, you know, or being like different. And the only reason I was kind of different was my hair went down to my butt crack, but I was like, whatever, (laughs) kids are mean anyway. So um, in seventh grade, my parents decided that they were going to pull me out of that school and take me to um, bring me to Harvard-Westlake, which is a huge school in Los Angeles, uh, private school. It's predominantly white. It's very wealthy, Mm -hmm. predominantly Jewish. Needless to say, it was the polar opposite of my experience of what I had been in. And I didn't want to go, but they were like, this is, you know, you have a better future, all this stuff. So the culture shock that I experienced was, I don't want to be dramatic, but it was, it was traumatic. And Mm -hmm. to go from an experience where like, you're just like, you're you and there's nothing to call out about that to suddenly being like, oh, you're different. You're, you're black was extremely difficult. And it caused like a lot of breakdowns for me because I just was like, again, my parents were kind of in a middle to upper class bracket. So I wasn't necessarily, I was in this world, this weird, like in between where I wasn't black enough for the black kids and I wasn't white enough for the white kids. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't mixed. I mean, sometimes people would think that, but like I wasn't in that, but I also didn't have like a black mom and a white dad or something like that. Mm -hmm. So I always felt just very like confused Mm -hmm. and it caused just like a lot of anxiety and depression. And so I just felt really misunderstood, but I like repressed it. Like I really suppressed it. There wasn't really a space at Harvard West, like to like have those conversations or to voice it. And, um, did you ever talk to your parents about it? I did talk to my parents about it. They tried to put me in therapy. Wasn't ready for that yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in hindsight, I'm like, damn, I should have just done it back then. It would have saved yeah. me a lot of pain. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I suppressed it. I, th- I quote unquote thrived, you know, I excelled at the school. And then when it was time for college, um, you know, when you're in a situation like that, I'm like, that's what you know. And that's kind of what you've had to grow yourself into. Like, this is the norm. Like you're supposed to be the other. You're so like kind of quote unquote white is right. Like that's what the best mm-hmm. type of school is. Like I chose it. Honestly, I chose a college that reflected my high school experience. Cause I didn't know mm-hmm. any different mm-hmm. and I didn't feel like I would be comfortable in any different. So I ended up going to Villanova, which is in Philadelphia. Um, it's predominantly white as well. And again, like very wealthy. And so it's just a reflection. And this time though, I did not repress myself. Like I became like that angry black girl. Cause I literally sometimes was the first black person that someone had been friends with. Mm. Like that was real. Like they had never been yeah, friends I with a black that. person. And I just was like, what? And I, you know, I changed my mate. I had this whole breakdown. I had a massive breakdown. My parents had to take me out of school for two weeks. Cause I just was like, I can't do this. Wow. When, when was this? Like freshman, freshman year, year of, okay. freshman, so, sorry, sophomore year of college. And on that break, I was like, I got to do something different. And I changed my minor. It was like in something else. And I made it race relations. Um, so all my classes, my whole thing changed. And then I ended up going, choosing my study abroad. Um, instead of like Europe, I went to Africa. Dang, that's awesome. Yeah. So all the breakdowns led to kind of like this act, like it, it chose and it stirred up the activism in me to mm-hmm. answer your question. Like how I got there was like through my pain is where the mm-hmm. activism came. Mm -hmm. And so in Africa, like I really saw in South Africa, you know, apartheid is still very much alive and real. And so, but the difference between with there versus the United States is that they, it's open. 
you fucking know what's happening. You know how everyone feels about everything. And here it's like, especially LA, like we kind of pretend like we're quote unquote woke and like we're cool, but I'm like, most are not in some capacity, but in South Africa, you know what it is. And for me, that was almost healing to be like, this is what it is. It's painful. It's ugly, but we're not hiding it. We're not suppressing it. So that put a new context of like what it could look like and how open I could be. So when I got back to school, like I was just really open about conversations and sometimes they went well, sometimes they didn't, but I felt like I was at least being true to myself in that. Um, and that's how I kind of ended my career at Villanova. And then I, you know, took it with me into the quote unquote real world back in LA. I'd love to go back a little bit to that feeling of coming to an essentially all white school and mm-hmm. being, I mean, how does that feel? Mm-hmm. And what, how are kids behaving towards you that feels notably different from where you had just been? Um, I would, I think for me, the real challenge was like, at least in Los Angeles, you know, I grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood. So if, even if I went to school and I was kind of the different, like when I came back home, I wasn't. So I still had this balance of like having some sort of rootedness, groundedness in my ide- in my racial identity. And I use that in air quotes because race is a construct anyway. So um, being at Villanova, um, it was like, this is how I explain it to people or how I've kind of like processed it is, it's the experience of both being invisible and being blatantly like out mm. in the open at the same time. Like you're invisible cause like people don't see you as valuable or they don't see you as the same. So you kind of are like you're invisible, but then you walk into a room and everyone stares Yeah. or like you're brought up like, so what's it like? Be-? You know what I mean? Like asking these specific questions that they wouldn't ask anyone else. So it was very confusing. It was still very confusing of like, who am I? Like, really, who am I? And that was, like, an ongoing thing of not wanting to stand out too much, but also not wanting to, like, fall into the shadows. Mm -hmm. So you don't really know who you are. Mm. Did you ever find your people in that school? Like, did you, or did you feel outcast the whole time? You know, this is not to, this is really not to sound egotistical, but people liked being my friend. I just didn't necessarily feel like I was, they knew my full, the full me. Yeah. You know, I'm a Gemini. I'm like really easy to talk to. Like I can talk to anyone, but there was like a depth that I don't feel like I let a lot of people see or like Mm -hmm. the pain um, Mm -hmm. that a lot of of people knew about. So I had like, you know, a lot of friends and maybe like one or two that really knew me. Mm -hmm. And again, I had that experience of like not being black enough for the black kids because they saw me as like being from LA and kind of like, they didn't know me at all, but my experience, and I realized I projected this onto them. I don't think that was actually the truth. My, my story around it was that like, they don't like me cause they think I'm too like uppity or that I'm too white. And that was really like my own, um, internal insecurities around it. Mm-hmm. So, um, that was a journey in itself of working through that. And as you started getting into, you know, your race relations classes, mm-hmm. what did you really enjoy about those studies and how did it change your perspective of the world? It was very validating. Um, there's this one class was called, uh, the politics of whiteness. And I had never like heard that fr- like, I'd never like heard that phrase, but when I got it, I was like, Oh my God, it like just put so much of my like pain and confusion into like an actual, like educational context, like a context that I could be grounded in and not just be swirling in my head about it. It was like, Oh my God, no, this is where this comes from. Like the idea that, that being white is the right way to be is the norm. And everything outside of that is like something like that to me was, it gave me a lot of like healing. Mm. It was like a very healing experience. Um, and then I had another class, um, And she ended up being my mentor and it was like Africana studies and it gave a lot more history. And like, again, like kind of connected me to like my ancestry. You know, I think a lot of people of color like get disconnected because I mean, we literally were like we were a lot of us were slaves. We were literally disconnected from our families. So I think for me, it gave me some like groundedness and like my actual identity that I never had had before. And it also made me realize how, um, colonize our education is I'm like why don't we know this earlier and that was like to me that was one of the biggest like lies that I had to come to terms with like wow what I've learned is really based off of like 
a certain perspective and Almost filter. Like brainwashing. Sometimes. Yeah. But yeah. everyone, not just me, like all of us have been brainwashed. Yeah. And that to me was like entering the matrix. I'm like, oh my God, what reality have I been living in? It's like in history classes in high school, you don't even really talk about anything. No. It's very biased, the history right. that you're given. Exactly. Well, even not to take this on a tangent, but I am obsessed with Watchmen. I don't know if you've seen that show. Oh, I I haven't seen it. I saw the movie. Oh, okay. But I didn't see the show. Watchmen isn't it like a isn't it like, it's like comic, a comic book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. but it starts with this um, racist attack on Tulsa, Oklahoma, mm-hmm. and it it's it's like a make believe world. The show, you yeah. know, it's like based on a comic, but it's the KKK essentially attacking this town. Um, dropping bombs on the town and I was telling Jess about it and explaining the premise for the show. It's a lot about racism and the KKK and, uh, and, and she was like, Oh, did that really happen? I'm like, no, that didn't happen. They didn't drop bombs on a town like that or city, you know? And I looked it up and it happened and it's not Mm -hmm. been taught in classes. And I've mentioned it to a lot of people and no one, and maybe this is just my oversight. Maybe I have heard it before, but I really don't think that I have No. or there just wasn't. And I just felt so dumb that I didn't know about that. This is Mm -hmm. a major occurrence. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just floored that we don't know about that. You know, Mm -hmm. it's just one example. Well, that's the, um, it's, uh, it's almost like it's a, it's such a filter. Like it's a literal blind spot because it's like also a filter. You know what I mean? Like how we see things is a, it's almost like a 360 blind spot Mm -hmm. and we can't even see, we don't even know that we don't know it. And I think it's not just for white people, but for people of color too. Like everyone's been colonized. Mm -hmm. Everyone has been colonized and the pain and the journey of all of our, of the collective is like decolonizing ourselves, but doing it together. Like it's not just one aspect of us. It's all of us who've been impacted. There's so many lines drawn, even like in neighborhoods driving through LA, it's like, Oh, this is the Hispanic neighborhood. or This is the, you know, and like some people don't feel comfortable being in certain neighborhoods, you know, mm-hmm. and that just all has to change. Oh yeah. And it's even on the reverse side, it's like, you know, my parents live in Ladera. That's a predominantly black neighborhood. And, you know, it's been black slash mixed, but you know, in the later years, it's definitely becoming gentrified as I think as, as rent gets really crazy in Los Angeles, people yeah. can't afford, you know, people from San Francisco coming down to LA pushing, you know, it's a whole thing. And even me and my parents are like, when we're in the neighborhood, it's, it, we comment, we're like, wow, there's like a lot of white people and not necessarily it's bad, but to your point, it is like, that is the ideal. But to some extent, we're all still like resisting. And I know people in Ladera are like, this is the one place that we have, like, this is a sacred space that like they feel where they don't have to worry or they can just be and all this stuff. But it's because they've been conditioned to not trust or to, you know, want to hold on to it. Well, and I meant more not that white people should take over these neighborhoods because I think it's actually, to your point, very important to have these strong neighborhoods. But I think that white people or people that are are not that race should feel comfortable being in these communities. Mm -hmm. That there's a, a sense of these like, these lines are drawn. Oh, now I'm in this neighborhood. Yep. And I feel like people will feel uncomfortable just being there, spending time there. And I think yeah. that could be not to veer off too much, but like something that people just challenge themselves to do, mm-hmm. to go to neighborhoods outside of their norm. Or countries like not, and again, not to go off on a tangent, but I lived in South Korea for a year and mm-hmm. taught English there. And that was the first time that I really felt like, whoa, like I'm the minority here and everybody was just you know everyone stares at you they take photos of you like and it's a different experience but standing in the street multiple times people will take out cameras and take photos of my husband and I and we're like oh sorry like thought we were in the way of their photo and they were actually taking the photo of us or kids would come up to me and say teacher your eyes are so big (laughs) and they would just yeah teacher your and they would just stand at my feet and look up at me in awe of all these features that I had that they weren't used to yeah and in the summertime I had a couple of kids who looked at me when I got to class because I tan easily and they said teacher we don't like it when your skin is dark Mm. and I I was shocked I was taken aback so I took those two little girls with the very little English that they spoke and I took them out to ice cream 
And I asked, I got permission from the parents and I had a talk with them as best I could about mm. the comment that they made. Mm. And they both started crying because they had no idea. Mm, yeah. They were embarrassed. They were shameful. They said, we're so sorry. We didn't know. And in that culture, it's really interesting. They still value like white skin. Mm-hmm. So they'll put white face makeup on themselves and they have this gorgeous tan skin and you see their legs are this bronze color and their face is pure white. white. Yeah. And they have white dogs and they actually yeah. have a white day, which is, oh which is like their Valentine's day, but it's called white day. And wow. everybody wears white and gives white. And it's just, it's crazy and odd, but that was the first I kind of experienced. Wow. Like mm-hmm. we need to have conversations here, you yeah. know, mm-hmm. but also getting out and experiencing other countries and cultures yeah. that are very different than your own and having to yeah. be in that uncomfortable space. Totally. That's totally. So and call and, and you know, the whole aspect of colonization, like it's not, just us centered it impacts everyone like you said like Mm -hmm. in asia like the light the whiter skin is like the better skin and that's usually like in in usually in every race quote-unquote like there is some aspect of like the 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 color conversation like even in the black like in the black community there's always a conversation of like light skin versus dark skin Mm -hmm. and there's always a tension there so it doesn't, it goes beyond just like black. It hits, it really does impact on a global, definitely on a global level. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's why we need part two of this conversation. Right. right. I don't think we're going to get through we it. Need to, but part two equals like 50 more years <laughs> of conversation. Yes. Yeah. So, true. yeah. So, moving, so you're, so you're in college, you're kind of having these breakthroughs of your own identity through these classes. Do you, you know, looking at maybe your, career beginning are you at that time aware that you want to work within this realm no. like where was your mind for sure not yeah I like graduated thinking I was gonna like work for the Lakers like I just <laughs> I was like oh it's a passion you know I mean, I'm getting more development in it and like understanding it more but it's always a passion and um I actually didn't work for uh I went to work for CAA which is a talent agency oh, yeah. and uh I did that for almost a year I thought I was gonna be an agent it was a whole thing I was just, it wasn't for me. That's a grind. That's not even like, the, I don't <laughs> even the know <laughs> the word for it. It's just, I still haven't like fully come to terms uh, with it. I'm like, oh my God, I'm so traumatized. Like say goodbye to your life. Stories. Like, oh yeah. my God. It was like, you know, the story of like, which wolf do you want to feed within yourself? And I'm like, I mm. could have fed that wolf. Like mm. I could have fed the wolf that was going to have me thrive. But I'm like, I would have lost my soul. Yeah. For sure. So mm-hmm. I was like, we're not going to feed that one. <laughs> Instead, <laughs> we're going to feed the ad agency one. Just yeah, kidding. Right. But I did go to the, the ad agency after that. And I still wasn't you know I mean like it was always a passion for me to talk about but it wasn't like a career um I didn't know that it could really be one and when I got to the ad agency um still wasn't didn't occur to me as like something to do it was always like a passion and then you know three years in when I really started to look at like okay business affairs is not actually what I want to be doing and I don't want to do this thing where I jump from job to job to job I knew that like being in a different ad agency or being at a different like corporation was not going to be fulfilling for me. So I, I, I made a commitment. I was like, I'm just going to stay here. They're, I'm, they're loyal to me. Like, you know what I mean? They treat me well here. So like, I, sh- I want to spread my wings and see what else I can, how I can bring impact to them yeah. and see like where that goes. And, uh, that's ultimately like what led to being like, huh. And even, you know, even when I left, the ad agency, it still wasn't, it didn't fully occur to me still that that was like, I, I started coaching, like I'm a coach and I'm a emotional freedom technique, um, practitioner. So like when I left my ad agency, like I was more rooted in being a coach and providing like emotional freedom, emotional wellness to people, holistic health. And then I was doing kind of like some consulting on the side, but really it was like, it kind of just snowballed like in a good way. Like it, it was clear that that was the direction that that was going. So I just kind of went with it. Like it started happening for you. It this started happening. The, the universe was yeah. like here, 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 and here. And I was like, so cool. okay, got it. I hear you loud and clear loud. It was very loud. It was very loud. And it was very loud for my business partner as well. Okay. So can you talk about that transition to safe space and where did the name come from and what kind of clients do you work with? How do people find you? Um, you talk about, you started to have these conversations. So how do you, you know, implement those conversations in everyday life and the workplace too? 
So thank you for asking about the name because it's like so great. I think it's one of our best moves. But, you know, I just noticed that a lot of people have always said like the reason why they don't talk about this conversation is because they don't feel like there's a safe space to do so. And that never like sat well with me for some reason. I'm like a safe space, safe space. Because when we would do workshops in the beginning, it was like, oh, I feel like this is a safe space. I can have this conversation around these things I'm really uncomfortable about. And I'm like, but what you're implying when you say that is that beyond this, you're not going to talk about it. You don't feel safe, quote unquote, to talk about it. So I was like, so what if we were just like a safe space where you can say literally Mm, what there is to say? Because safe isn't... You're the, when you're saying safe, you're implying that there's something unsafe <laughs> about it, yeah, that there's something true. dangerous right. when there really isn't. Yeah. It's what you make it mean. So I could actually end up being more intimidating. It's more people. intimidating. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I'm like, well, it's just a safe space. Just say what you need to say yeah. in a way that actually makes a difference. Mm-hmm. So that's where that came from. And I, we make it very clear. Um, and the people that we train, we make it very clear, like, we don't say safe space. That's not something that we say. Um, and there's also appropriate times when that can be said, but we just didn't feel like that was our workshops or that time for it. Um, so with that, we do have a grounding in psychological safety. Like that's where all of our conversations stem from. And I don't know if you guys know what psychological safety is, but it, uh, so Google ran a study a couple years ago, it doesn't, it didn't stem from Google, but Google's kind of the one who put it out there. And they ran a study about like what makes teams the most effective. And they did, it was called project Aristotle. And they did all these different studies. Like, is it geographical that makes teams most productive and, and successful? Is it like race? Is it the highest achievers? Like, what is it that makes teams the most effective? And what they found was when there was an environment of psychological safety present, where they felt like they could take risks without the fear of judgment where they could really be themselves without fear of like being reprimanded or ridicule or whatever it was. That's what the most made the most effective teams. So Emily, my business partner and I took that concept of like, well, what if we had that and had that be the foundation of having challenging conversations where you could actually say and be yourself without having the fear that you would be judged or ridiculed. Mm -hmm. So that's our foundation for everything. Mm -hmm. And our three pillars around psychological safety that we created, um, is curiosity, authenticity and responsibility. And that's Mm -hmm. our pillars for everything, bringing curiosity, bringing authenticity and bringing responsibility. And within that, there's a whole world, but, um, that's where everything stems from. And if you have that foundation, then really any challenging conversation can at least start, (laughs) can at least be approached, you know? One of the things that I saw on your Instagram account um, cause it just brought this up in me is, and I know you said you're taking a break from know, Instagram, which is great. I'm the worst. <laughs> but, um, but there's still said, such good stuff there that people should read. Cause it, yeah. You know, yeah. Thank mm-hmm. you. Always valuable. Thank you. And I want to bring this up because you're talking about how to have these conversations, which yeah. I think people don't necessarily know how to do. Mm-hmm. So in one of your Instagram posts, you talk about, and I'm going to quote you how as black American people want to be friends with you, replicate your culture, but they don't want to be you. They want to listen to your music and wear your clothes, but they don't want to know about the black experience because if they really knew, they would never be the same. Furthermore, they would probably have to confront some things they would rather ignore or place responsibility responsibility elsewhere. And that really struck a chord with me because you also encourage people who have a black friend or a significant other to have a conversation with them about what their experience has been like. Mm -hmm. And I started reflecting on that and thinking those conversations probably don't happen because people are afraid of saying the wrong thing, Right. you know, and which is so silly because it, you know, just perpetuates the problem, you know? And so how would you suggest that people get comfortable having these kind of uncomfortable conversations? I think, um, when you said that, I was like, oh yeah, I did write that. Yeah. Good job. That sounds good. Um, I think that, um, as much as people are afraid to say the wrong thing, like it's silence that kills, you know, it's silence that kills, more than saying the wrong thing does because, you know, I've been in like a leadership program based off of communication for a year and a half now. And if I've learned anything, it's like all things can be solved like in communication, but when you don't communicate, they will never be worked through. They'll never be solved. Even if it gets ugly, 
Yeah. You know what I mean? People tend to want to avoid mess and chaos, but like everything, when you have the resources and the tools can be solved in communication. Most people just don't know how to communicate. And that's where like our pillars of psychological safety come in is like, just at least being curious when you can have a, like a lens of curiosity, like the beginner's mind, then it doesn't occur as like intimidating. It's like, I'm curious, like what has your, what is your, what has your experience been? And you can even be authentic and be like, I don't know what the F I'm doing. You can tell me to F off. You can tell me to go read a book, but like, I'm really committed to having a conversation where I understand your world better if you're open to it at least opening the door. The person may not want to talk about it, but at least you've let them know that like you're here if you want to learn. You know, there's the other side of the fact of like, there are just some things like white people in general can like read about. <laughs> there's just some things. Yeah. So that like underestimated people don't have to do all of the educating. There's some aspects mm-hmm. of that, but I do think that um, the avoidance of the conversation sometimes in my experience has been more hurtful mm-hmm. than the actual words that come out of the mouth. Cause I know I can, I know personally I can manage that. At least I know where you're at, but when you're silent, there's a lot of assumptions or like, you know, there's a lot of, um, things that are just not being said. And I think that's often more painful than the things that are said. Yeah. I think that's great advice. Yeah. What other reasons do you think people might have such blocks around talking about race? I think people make it really personal. I think, you know, when they hear like you said something racist or, you know, whatever, it becomes like a moral conversation. Like I'm, I am a bad person and it's really not that like people collapse that, like we're having conversation around things that have been in our, they're literally in the quilt of our society everyone is conditioned every single person it's weird if you don't have racist thoughts like (laughs) like what planet have you been living on um and so I think that it becomes moral like I'm a bad person and people really they're committed to being good people so when they're confronted by the fact that they might not be a good person they feel attacked and if you can learn to just distinguish that it's not like a moral thing it's like what we're all conditioned to do then we can have a conversation about it Mm -hmm. so when you can bring compassion to yourself in the conversation of like damn like this has been my upbringing like and I didn't even know it and then not make yourself like wrong you know like it's not it's not moral it's just what there is and I think when you can like remove that from your for yourself then it doesn't become as like intimidating to have the conversation yeah and I will say I'm a health coach and very immersed in the LA wellness space and I'll be the first to admit that most of the events and retreats I go to are at least 80% white. Oh my God, didn't even get me started and, on this. <laughs> and, and wellness, you know, it should be inclusive. It shouldn't matter who you are. You should have a right, you know, black, white, Asian, woman, man, child to be well. That is your right, you know, and it should be inclusive and accessible we, and accessible. And we preach that here in the LA wellness world, you know, that we're open to everybody. But then when you go to these events, it starts to feel very exclusive. Mm-hmm. And again, on your Instagram, I saw you post about going to a retreat and there was like 27 women or something. And you were the only black woman. And you said, you know, and I'm probably not saying it, it exactly how you said it, but you said something like, um, I'm very used to this situation. Mm -hmm. It would be weird if, if it were the opposite. And you said that typically you might just, you know, sit there in silence, but you decided to speak up. And I think that probably took a lot of courage, Mm -hmm. but then out of it was born this really necessary kind of deep conversation. So I would love if you could speak a little bit to that Mm -hmm. and how we can create more inclusivity within the wellness space. Yeah, that was, um, that was a really interesting, my business partner was with me during that and she was always challenging me, like Bianca, like you don't have to be the one that she was so mad at the whole situation. Emily's white. And she was like, you don't have to be the one that teaches everyone. So I really had to grapple with like, do I want to have to be the one as I always am Mm -hmm. to have to speak up and like, educate. And, you know, I slept on it and ultimately I was like, I'm just going to trust my intuition in the moment. And 
what was there was like, I was not going to be able to authentically connect with people. Cause I was just in my, that was in my space that like, this was annoying me. People had touched my hair. It was just like a whole thing. Like I was like, so over it. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I had to, I had to address it. Cause I was like, this is going to be a waste of my time and their time. Cause they're not going to get the full me. So I really opened it and started with like what my commitment was. And before just like diving in, I was like, you know, I struggled with what if I want to say this and I want to let you guys know, like, I think you're all amazing people. And what's there for me is that like, I don't feel like I can connect because there's this inauthentic like thing happening for me, which is that I'm the only black, I'm the only, not a black person. I'm the only woman of color period mm-hmm. here. And I know everyone here is committed to like bringing wellness to everyone, but it's painful for me to see that your own, that like what's showing up is that you're only committed to some getting wellness Mm -hmm. in some capacity. You know, everyone was like real quiet and I had to grapple with my guilt over like, well, I just derailed this woman's, you know, retreat. And then I was like, I don't care. So then it opened up this whole conversation with everyone. And, um, it was interesting because it, it definitely, it definitely moved the conversation forward, but ultimately it ended with, (laughs) a white woman bringing it back to her and crying over something like mm. that had happened to her. And my mm. business partner was so mad. I could I see her fuming. And I was just like, I'm going to like let it go. But it opened up enough of the conversation where like, I think, you know, people came up to me afterwards and like thanked me and stuff. And I, I said the way that like, you can, I can feel like you got this is that you go have this conversation with other people. Like you don't need to have it with me. Mm-hmm. It's don't almost like that people. woman who made it about herself. That was like her attempt to connect with you in a weird, like kind of it twisted way. You know is. what I mean? It absolutely it's like, I can't is. connect. I can't relate. So let me like talk about this yeah. traumatic experience that happened to me. Yeah. Another great reason to be talking about this because I'm sure mm-hmm. a lot of people respond. They do. To, to, they do. Thinking that that is somehow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> or, or, yes. or would strike a chord with you. Like, yes, no. Yes. And we do that as humanity, not even mm-hmm. in just the race oh, conversation. The That's time. just like a human yeah, thing that we do. Me. Bring yeah. it back as a means to connect. Yeah. And, um, I went, I, I got trained by this renowned diversity trainer. His name's Le Munois. I wanted to ask about this. Yeah. yeah. He's awesome. If you guys have a chance, like, send links to his stuff. He's, he's incredible. He's been doing this work for a really long time. And, um, you know, he, he gives you empathetic responses because our first thing is like, Oh, that happened to me too. And when you do that, you like kind of invalidate people. Like my experience is more important than the one you're telling me about. And I, we all do it. We all do it. So it's like not a call out around race. It's just like something to be mindful. Yeah. It's just something to be mindful of. Cause like we all want to connect. That's what, that's why we have conversations and it gets lost. You know, we think we're communicating and we're really not. And that's the fundamentals of our workshops. A lot of time is like, are we listening? Like, are we actually listening? Cause that's most of what communication is, is what we're listening. Cause if you hear what pe- what's really important for people, you'll speak to that yeah. versus what you think is important, which is, you know, your own experience. Mm-hmm. What do you think would have been the most powerful response from somebody? <sighs> Or what, what would you have wanted to see? I think more, more times than not. And again, this is something that I've learned in the communication courses that I've taken and mindful facilitation and just my own experience of like, people don't need you to solve their problems. They just need to be known like they're heard and that they're seen and that they're understood. And so I think a lot of times just even reflecting back what the person said, like, I really heard that this was a painful experience for you. And what would make a difference is that there was more people like you in this room. Thank you so much for sharing that. Like, what do you need from us? You know what I mean? Like, you don't have to make it about you at all. Like you also don't have to answer the answer. I think that's also what the block is. People think they have to know the answer. Mm. You really don't. I don't know the answer. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just out here just like you guys, just being curious. Have you been your truth in that, in that moment? It's mm-hmm. like, you don't need a solution right no. away. It's just, it's how I feel. Have you been yeah. to events in LA that actually are there to hold space for these conversations? Totally. Okay. Yeah. No, I have. Um, well, do you mean specifically like in wellness? I mean, just, I guess in general, um, wellness might be a more interesting way to zoom in because I think that's a a big problem. I haven't been to one where like, there's been like, it's been like a curated dialogue. I've been to wellness spaces where it's like specifically for underestimated people. You know, you have to be very intentional and to back to your, something you said earlier, just around like, what can we do to like, 
make wellness more inclusive. Um, I think acknowledging, first of all, that there's a problem is the first thing. And I think the second thing is how do you get more people? Because, you know, a lot of these things that we talk about in wellness, they come from different cultures. Like we need to honor the people like that these cult that it came from. Like, how do we get more of them in front of the room? Like, that's really the equity. It's it's yes, it's the people in the room, but who's leading it? Cause that's really where the power is. Is like, who is directing the conversation? So again, do I have answers? That's a longer conversation, but, um, circling back to what you were saying, like I, there, I haven't been like a curated discussions have led there, but I haven't gone to like a curated, I take that back. I have, I have gone to small groups where we've talked about it and like what can be done and stuff. So they happen. But we you need mean, more of that. Yeah. You know, we could make that happen. We could, you, Ryan and I plan events. I would love to make that happen. Yeah. yeah. Where it is. Coming a, off a, our last event, I'll say like, cause we, we did our last event with our friends again, you know, and it was like, when we got there, I, it hit me like in, this embarrassed feeling yeah, of same. like, shit, yeah. we messed up. And, and and not making and, and to your point, I wanted to dive into like the difference between diversity and inclusion, because first of all, it would be great to have a more diverse crowd, but ultimately the best thing to do is have a more diverse panelists and, and be leading the conversation intentionally on those yeah. topics. Like yeah. that is the difference. People focus a lot on diversity and like, Oh, you know, I had diverse attendees. That's great, but that's not enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that that would actually be, that would be an event that I would be really excited about creating. Let's do it. Yeah. You want to be a part of it? Sure. Okay. Yeah. No, that's, I, you're, you're on the money with that of like, it's girl, it's so deep, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. you know, um, having, people who look like me and who look, you know, like having the quote unquote other, the underrepresented, underestimated, like in front of the room, like that is what the power is. Cause there's, they have, we have so much to say. There's so much power in the, the, that's where you also have alignment with the group as well. Like, you know, they bring their own following, they bring their own connections, but in that, that actually, that actually is equity because you're giving the mic over to someone as opposed to being the one like preaching. So I think, and it's not to say that like white women and white people don't belong. It's just like, where is, where is the power right now? And, and I hate that word power, but like, where are we taking away power from people mm-hmm. no matter who it is? Yeah. Yeah. Or silencing people. Or silencing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that feeds into a question I wanted to ask about cultural appropriation. Mm. I think this is a huge issue on Instagram in particular. Totally. Um, which will, could you just first explain what cultural appropriation is and maybe mm-hmm. we can get into some examples so people understand. Yeah. Well, cultural appropriation is, um, it's not mocking it. It comes from a place of like wanting to respect, but you're essentially like replicating another culture's, um, another culture's culture and claiming it as your own and not really giving any sort of homage or any sort of, um, acknowledgement to where it came from. Um, and you're, you, a lot of times you're using it for some sort of, there could be monetary, um, but not always, that's not always the case. You see it all over, like people use Halloween costumes, you know, it's cultural appropriation. We have sports teams, of cultural appropriation. So it's really like the taking of someone else's culture without like due acknowledgement or, um, yeah, that's what I would say about it. It goes a lot deeper, but well, it's like spark no version. I, I've seen a lot of articles around like Kylie Jenner for this one because of just the look that she creates and profiting off of that. And, then there's just a lot of women on Instagram that have even made themselves look, they're so tan that they're mm-hmm. trying to play off like they're black, but they're white, you know, and then their following is growing and they're making money off of that. And, and then I heard an interesting podcast with a, with a black woman who was talking about how even like yoga is really like, it's all these white women, yeah. which is something I, I be honest, did not think about like all these yogis and people, and this is not to offend anyone listening, but like you're talking about the practices and stuff, but are we really learning about the culture and the history and yeah, where this came from? So the yoga thing is like, that's very real. Um, and I would highly recommend following, um, her name is Constanza Eliana Chinea. She's on Instagram. Um, she has a whole thing around, it's called embody inclusivity, but it's really like disrupting this practice of yoga and like how, um, how colonized it has gotten. Like, 
from the, even the basics of it, like how it's talked about, how it's taught has been so whitewashed basically. Mm -hmm. Um, and the people who like the, the, the true, um, holders of yoga, the, the true teachers of it aren't actually the ones who are teaching or the ones who are getting acknowledged or the ones who are getting the equity or the monetary compensation. Um, and instead, you know, we have, and it's not to make anyone wrong. It's kind of just how the flow of things have gone, but, um, you know, you kind of have like the white woman on the beach, like meditating in like this crazy cross-legged position. And that's what we call yoga. And, you know, I'm not a yoga expert, but I highly recommend following her as she goes very deep into, um, what's, what it actually is and what it's become and the impact of that on all of us. Mm -hmm. We're not actually getting the true value of yoga and the people who should be teaching it and should be out in the, in the, in the media and should be front center of like, are not. Don't have the same voice. Don't have they the have same no, platform. Yeah. Yeah. They don't have the same opportunity whatsoever. So now we're left with this kind of like watered down version of quote unquote yoga. Mm. Yeah. It's such an interesting, it, just to make people think and start noticing these things. It's hard. You know, when you like take your rose tinted glasses off, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's alarming. It is alarming. I know my business partner years and years ago went through it and she called me hysterically crying after she had gone through her own training and it's been a journey for her, but she just was like, like I said, like it took the matrix, like it's the matrix. Like you took the red pill and you're like, this is, this is reality. What reality have I been living in? Mm -hmm. And most people, a lot of people are unwilling because it's very scary to know that like what you think is true is not true. And, and in reading about safe space and what you do there, Mm -hmm. you talk about helping companies identify their blind spots. Yeah. Can you talk about how you do this through the workshops or mm-hmm. the, the coaching that you provide? Yeah. You know, you can't really like go in a company and be like, we're going to talk about <laughs> white privilege and dominant culture. <laughs> like that doesn't, you know, that doesn't resonate. And I know a lot of people in the diversity world, um, struggle cause they don't want to mince their words. They don't want to feel like they have to change their messaging in order to speak to a company. And I get that. I very much understand that. And my take on it is that, um, I think, you know, corporations run America. They, America is a giant corporation. If you can get into, if you can start to shift that dynamic, you can literally start to shift America. So you have to speak literally to the listening of what these companies need. Like they might not know that they have power dynamics or that they have structural oppression going on in their company. And that's not how, like, that's what's working to facilitate the conversation around because as an expert facilitator or as a trained facilitator, we can draw out the things that are being said and what are not being said. And then we reflect it to see like, well, what's the impact on your company? Like, what's the experience? And we create the space for people to actually voice what their experience has been. And that actually does have an impact on your culture, on your environment. And ultimately, I know people don't want to talk about it, but on your business, mm-hmm. you know, we're evolving. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, if you're not going to evolve with the conversation and with literally the changing population, you will die out. And that's a, that's a, that is a fact, or you're not going to be as effective, but if you're committed to, and beyond that, sometimes I just want to be like, it's the right fucking thing to do. Like, Mm -hmm. that's why, but you know, you can't do that. You have to allow them to discover what the impact is. When you tell someone it's a bit different, but when they get it for themselves, it's like, oh yeah, now I want to do something. So we really like are doing a lot of coaching for people. It's not a lot of definitions and teaching and the, like we have partners who can come in and do the more historical aspects of that training. But what we're there is like really facilitating what is happening, what's not being said and what's the impact of that on your company. Can you speak to some of the, just to kind of give people an idea of what Mm -hmm. that looks like, like some of the testimonials that you've received or maybe what that looks like when it's put into action. Yeah. Like Mm -hmm. a major breakthrough that you've had with a client. Yeah. Um, I would say like we had a, we had a woman, um, this was a little, I don't know, probably a while ago, maybe sometime this year, but we had a woman who, um, was about to quit. She was a black woman and she was about to leave because there was a comment made in a meeting and no one said anything about it. Like it was a, it was a racial comment. No one spoke up and she's just like, really? No one's going to say anything about it. Mm -hmm. And, um, she didn't feel 
confident or like that she could go to HR or anyone. So she just kind of repressed it. And she was like, I don't want to be at a company where this is what happens. So in the workshop, she was actually able to voice it. And the executive was in the room, like the, um, our, the, one of the HR people was in the room and was like, oh my God. And she actually spoke to the person. So she didn't have to have the other woman do it. She actually spoke to the person. They got it addressed. Then that woman, the black woman and the other person like had a conversation. So it would just, everything got resolved very quickly. And she, she didn't end up leaving because she was like, I was actually able to voice what I need to say in a way that made a difference for someone mm-hmm. and actually moved something forward. Like mm-hmm. I didn't have to suppress myself. And I think that's a lot of times the people who are in those positions feel suppressed and that they can't bring their full selves to work. Mm-hmm. So on a business end, I'm like, you're paying someone a hundred thousand dollars. You're getting like 50% of them, you know? So mm-hmm. I'm like, it's really like, I don't know if you can, t- you know, you can't maybe feasibly put the numbers there, but I'm like, imagine if everyone was bringing a hundred percent. Well, and avoiding the turnover too, because mm-hmm. having to train new people, uh, that just does affect your bottom line. It so does. Keeping good people there for long term. And people, you know, I was longer. Is longer. And I've, I've, cause at some point it might not actually be in alignment with like yeah. what you're up to in life. And these days we're not People all. are changing careers. People <laughs> change careers every 24 hours. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, we can't point that to everything. But, um, I would say that like, I think a lot of people avoid having that conversation again about the business, but like there literally is an impact of it. It's not either or it's, and it's like, you're having a human, there's a human impact and there's an impact on your business. And you just have to be willing to look at both and not separate it out because it's a, you create the full world of it. You know what I mean? When you talk about both, um, and it hits the, the point for both people, like as a CEO, obviously you care about your people, but you're also like, I'm running a business, you know? So there's a lot, there's a lot to it, but I think a lot of times people want to just jump into action. You know, people just want to be like, okay, this is a problem. Uh, like, how do we fix it? I'm like, this is, this is a deep, deep conversation. And a lot of times half the work is just sitting with the discomfort. Mm-hmm. And I speak to that mostly for the white people in the, in the conversation, you got to sit with the discomfort, but as well as the other side of it is like, there's discomfort on that end. Like, how do we just sit with it before we just jump into action? So that's another balance of like, in these trainings, how much of it is geared towards the education of white people and balancing, like, is it at the expense of the underestimated people who are like, I live this shit every day. Mm -hmm. I don't need it. I don't need a training on this. This is my life. So it's really having a balance of like, how do we just have a conversation versus like, we're educating you on something. Oh, that's such a good point. I didn't, I wouldn't have thought about it that way. And then there's the flip side of like, when someone's made a comment that is identified as racist, like this person, this guy, woman, I don't know who it was that made the comment and the HR person talked to them. It's like, then there's the element of, are you sorry because you're embarrassed what people will think? Mm-hmm. Or are you sorry because you genuinely want to change and grow? And mm-hmm. then it's like, you're having to get into that deeper level with them. Yep. Yeah. And that's, you know, you're not gonna, you gotta be clear that you're probably not gonna reach everyone. Right. <laughs> it's really it's about, yeah. And you should and, and I think for me, it's been like acknowledging that like, I'm not speaking to everyone. I'm not going to affect everyone. And that's okay. Like it's impacting who you're going to, who, who it's meant to impact, but it's just, it's it creating a ripple effect though. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's about creating the environment. Like if you look at the specific people that can be a little daunting, but like, what's the environment? And that's, um, Emily, I don't know where she heard it from. I think there's this amazing company, um, racial equity Institute, REI, and they do a lot of teaching on like the historical oppression, like where the history of all of this, uh, these oppressive structures and systems that we have. And one of the things that they talked about, like as a, as a society and, and really as just humanity, we, in this conversation, like if we use the analogy of like a pond, right? So there's a pond and you look at the pond one day and all the fish are dead or they're starting to die. We would start looking at the fish, a lot of people look at the fish like, what's wrong with these fish? Are they sick? Why are they so sick? And like, that's really not of service, but you have to start looking at like, well, start questioning like, well, what is the pond water? What's in the pond water that's actually like polluting them and having them be sick? And then if you want to go a step deeper, what is the ground? What's in the ground that's polluting the water that's making the fish sick? So I think a lot of times in companies, we look at the people we look at the fish as opposed to the environment that might be making them sick. Mm-hmm. That's a really good 
way of thinking of it. I think that goes deep. For sure. And um, we're conscious of the time because yeah. you have a meeting. But <laughs> can I ask a quick yeah. question? Yeah. Um, so a friend was telling me about a Joe Rogan episode where he, and I haven't listened to him and haven't listened to this, so I'm sorry if I am butchering what actually happened, but apparently he was talking about how he doesn't feel that he should have to hire someone because... Uh, because he needs to hire a person of color mm-hmm. or a minority that he thinks he should just be able to hire the best person for the job, whatever color they are, you know, so to, to that extent was the, or to, some element of that was, that was his main point. And I, I know how I feel about that, but how, how do you respond to that? I mean, I think there's also one aspect of like, well, what are you considering as the best? Like, what are the qualifications yes. that you're mm-hmm. actually having where you're automatically excluding people? Like, are you saying they have to have a college degree? Are you having to say they have to have X amount of experience? Like, there's definitely some technical things. Like, I get like sometimes there's just technical things that, you know, need to be looked at and are required for a job. But between that and also looking at, well, where are you looking? Like a lot of people just look in the same places or it's recommendations or it's, but if you're recommending from the same thing, you're probably going to get the same thing. So if you're, you know, if, if someone is a highly educated white male and their environment or network is the same thing, then who do you think is going to be brought forth? So it's also expanding it. So it's, a, what are you defining as like the best quote unquote candidate? And two, what are the networks that you're looking at to quote, to find quote unquote, the best candidate? Yeah. Yeah. And also just the importance of like, yeah, of course you could find someone who is very qualified and a great candidate Mm -hmm. if you need more diversity in your company, because if you don't have everyone represented, then that is to me a major problem. And your business can encounter many, many challenges down the road Mm -hmm. by not representing the voices and opinions of a broad spectrum of people, including women. Of course it's inner, it's, it's intersectional. It's not like women and people, it's, it's all of it. And context really is important. If you're going to look at like hiring different people be, to check off num- the check off boxes, then no, that's not going to be empowering it at all. But if you're, if you have a bigger commitment beyond that, like, wow, I really want to give an opportunity to people who don't usually, and they're qualified, like that's way more empowering than like, oh, I got to check this box. And that right. happens all the time in television. Yeah. I mean, like reality shows, like, oh, it's going to meet this quota, you know, and, and it's really unfortunate. And it yeah. has, I think the fact that you're opening up these conversations and making people aware of their biases is incredibly important. And because we are coming to the end of this mm-hmm. interview, I think it would be really cool. Rai had mentioned that she saw that you did a seven day challenge on social media to help people mm-hmm. um, get to the root of their biases. Is that something that you could challenge our listeners to today as like a way for them to take what they've heard so far and kind of start to take action? Yeah. So that was, um, I actually think that was, I think that was Constanza's uh, I think that was her challenge. It's been so long since yeah, I've been you on were Instagram. Participating in someone else's yeah, challenge. I was I was like, I think okay. that I think that was hers mm-hmm. or it was someone else's. Um, you know, I don't like to overwhelm people a lot, because uh, it is so deep. But one of the first things I would say was like, like just look at your friend group. Like look at like what perspective is missing. And I'm not saying you need to go out and do something, but it's really just starting to be aware. Like and also starting to have conversations, you know, I tell white people, I'm like, have conversations with yourselves, <laughs> with each other, because that will take the load off of the people who feel like they always have to be the ones educating. And I would say, like, read or or, yeah. or, or if you don't have to read, like, whatever your form of, like, gathering information, but, like, really start to understand the context and just start being aware of, like, who's missing in the room. Yeah. yeah. And on that note, any podcasts, books, resources that you would recommend? Um, oh my goodness. There's so many. I have to, I think I might have to send, send you you a list. I have so, so many, but, um, yeah, I'll send it to you. Maybe we could even do like an Instagram post where we just focus on resources. Yeah. 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 And I'm pretty, I'm pretty like 
Mm, I don't, again, like to overwhelm. So I mm-hmm. only give a few. So people aren't like, oh my God, it's like the Cheesecake Factory. I don't know what you want to choose. <laughs> well, and like some people learn through podcasts. Totally. Or, you know, so. And that's how we usually do it. We usually break it into like a podcast, a book, and like an article or maybe perfect. a movie. So people have different modes that they can learn from. That's perfect. Yeah. And you're a great place to start. So how can people keep in touch with you? Well, since I'm on Instagram... <laughs> <laughs> um, we, our website is www.say-space.com. And then we also have a LinkedIn say space. So those are the best ways to reach out to us. And then of course my email, which is Bianca at say Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank well, you so guys. Much. Real quick. Anything yeah. that you're really super excited about in your business that you want to share or promote? Um, in our business, I mean, we're just working with a ton of amazing clients right now. It's really inspiring to see um, people committed to this work and having this conversation, um, on a personal basis, like I'm starting a black women's healing group where we're actually going to go through, uh, reading the artist's way. I don't know if you guys know the book, the artist's way. It's a 12 week, basically exploration of spiritual, of creativity through spirituality, but, um, I'm doing it for black women so we can learn about like the specific blocks that keep us from our passion, our joy, and like really just being alive in life and not being like, you know, suppressed by this conversation of like race like what else do we have in our lives so i'm really excited to hold space for that you're doing incredible work thank Thank you guys appreciate it thank you Well, we could have talked to Bianca forever, and we're actually planning to start conversations around a collaborative event with Safe Space, so make sure that you stay tuned for that. Yeah, and if you're enjoying our podcast so far, we'd love for you to subscribe and leave us a review so we can continue bringing on guests you want to hear from and grow this community. I also wanted to explain, if you haven't left a review before, I've had a couple people tell me that it's a little confusing. So all you need to do is go to the podcast homepage, click on our podcast, scroll down past through all past all the episodes to the bottom and it'll say ratings and review. Then you can leave a rating and you can write in your review as well. And that would mean so much to us. Also, if you are enjoying, enjoying a specific part of this episode, we'd encourage you to take a screenshot and tag us on your Instagram stories at solo 2.0 podcast, and we will share it as well. Thank you for listening. And remember, even if nothing feels right today, you tuning into this podcast and opening your mind is enough. Change doesn't happen overnight. So be patient and kind to yourself and good things will come. See you next time.